Please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. In the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, in the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Father, we're aware from this text and from our own experience that apart from the kind of power that was exerted on Abraham's behalf, in order to bear Isaac, we would be dead. Spiritually lifeless, insensitive to all the movings of the Holy Spirit in the world, without joy, without hope, without faith. And so we reckon ourselves utterly dependent on you in this moment because our desire in being here is to see you and love you and praise you, and savor you, and delight in you, and enjoy you, and bank our hope on you, and walk out of here a friend of yours, conscious of your sweet grace in our lives, all of which is beyond us and is supernatural. So I ask for you to come and to shed abroad the love of God in our hearts and to awaken the dead, and to bring forth from slumbers vital, joyful, alert, God-sensitive faith. O God, let none be callous now as you work. Your work is mighty. It shatters stone, and it melts, and it cuts to the dividing of soul and spirit, bone and marrow, and reveals the secret things of the heart. It never returns void. It accomplishes what you appoint. And I beg of you that you would appoint life for it this morning and not hardening. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's begin where we left off last Sunday. Last Sunday, I held up a great promise to you that to Abraham and to all of his heirs, including the physical ones who trust in him, the Jews, and the the merely spiritual ones who have the faith of Abraham, Gentiles, most of you, that you would be heirs of the world. Verse 13, just before what Justin read. The promise to Abraham and to his descendants that he would be heir of the world. And the way Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 3.21, all things belong to you, And you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs 
to God. That was last week. And I ended with four admonitions or exhortations. I said, rejoice in this great hope. I said, be secure in your afflictions. I said, be a little bit crazy and venture something for God in view of how brief this life is and how long eternity is and how great your inheritance is. And I said, give God glory. And some of you did that last week. Some of you made decisions that will change the rest of your life. And I praise God for it. Now, it only gets better this week because Paul is so serious about your banking your hope on being an heir of the world. And so having your life turned into the kind of crazy life that makes the world sit up and say... Give us the reason for the hope that is in you because you're not acting the way ordinary people act who only hope in this life. You must have something beyond this life. Tell me about it. He is so eager for you to have that kind of hope and produce that kind of light shining life that he works and labors with all his might in this text to put underneath that promise a guarantee, a certainty, a rock, an assurance that we will see in this text, and that's what I want you to have this morning. So let's go to verse 16 and take the questions one at a time as they come, and there are several. It begins like this in the New American Standard Bible. For this reason, it is by faith. And the question is, what does it refer to? And if you're looking down at a new international version, it tells you already what the it refers to because the NIV is a paraphrase. And it answers all kinds of questions that uh, I would like to help you answer without the help of the translation, which is why in the pew we have the NASB and why I preach from it. So, if you ever wondered, why don't they put a modern translation that's easier to read in the pew, for goodness sakes, instead of this wooden, crusty old NASB? And the answer is because I would like to argue for what it refers to, rather having it preempted by the translation, because it's not promise in the Bible. That's a guess, and a pretty good one. But let's check it out to see from the context whether that's what it really means. What the, what the Greek says very simply is, for this reason, by faith, in order that, according to grace, and the verbs are gone, and the subjects are gone, and you got to supply them. So, what does it refer to? For this reason... It is by faith. Well, let's go back up to verse 13, and I think you can get a pretty good contextual answer. Verse 13 says, For the promise to Abraham, or to his descendants, that we would be heir of the world, that he would be an heir of the world, was not through law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now, here he says that the promise comes not just through faith. It comes through the righteousness of faith. Now, it's not wrong. It's not wrong to say the promise comes through faith. It's not a false statement. The promise does come through faith. 
But in the context, if you were to ask, what is by faith here? I think the answer is first, the righteousness of God is by faith. And that's the foundation on which the promise is given to you. So a fuller meaning of verse 16 at the beginning is, for this reason, it, that is, the righteousness of God credited to my account on which is given freely to me the promise to be an heir of the world is by faith. Righteousness is by faith and the promise which is accorded to that righteousness is also by faith. And the reason I stress that is simply I don't want you to lose out of your head that this whole chapter is about justification by faith. This chapter is not just about promises by faith. It is about being righteous before God, not with the righteousness of my own, but one from God imputed to me by faith alone. That's what this chapter is about. So, the first question I answer by saying it in verse 16, it is by faith is the same thing verse 13 says, Righteousness is by faith, and the promise that is built on it is by faith. Second question. What does for this reason refer back to? For this reason, it, the righteousness and the promise, are by faith. And the answer is given in verse 14. If those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. That's why it's by faith, because the alternative to faith is law. And if you attempt to get right with God through the keeping of the commandments of the law, you will nullify faith and the promise will be void. And we don't want the promise to be void. Therefore, it is by faith, not law. So verse 14 is the argument. Law brings wrath. Faith brings righteousness down. And on that righteousness, a promise is given to us that we will be an heir of the world. So let's paraphrase verse 16 so far like this. Since trying to keep the commandments of the law in order to get right with God brings wrath and nullifies promises. Therefore, that righteousness and the promise built on it is by faith. Now, that's all last week. We've seen that already. What's the new thought? What's the new reason given in verse 16 for why... We should want righteousness and the promise by faith alone. What's the new reason? And it's in the next phrase. The new reason is because faith accords with grace. Let's read it. For this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace. Now, why is that important? Why is it important that the way we pursue righteousness and promise 
accord with grace. And the answer is given in the next phrase, next clause in verse 16. So that the promise will be guaranteed, certified, sure to all the descendants, both kinds, Jewish believers, Gentile believers, because Abraham is the father of both. It's the guarantee that makes it so important. Grace guarantees the promise. Now we see what Paul is up to. I gave this sermon the title, The Faith, Grace, Certainty Connection. You can see that here, I hope. It is by faith, which accords with grace, so that the promise will be certain or guaranteed. Faith, grace, certainty. Now, we see what he's up to. He's up to blessing you with the gift of assurance this morning. Sometimes, I'm sure you must ask, if you're a typical, pragmatic, get-it-done-quick, don't-bother-me-with-long-tangled-arguments kind of American, you would say, why in the world does he write a book like this? Why does he write like this? Why does he write in such a way that he gets so involved? What practical use is this? And his answer here is, do you want to be sure that last week's promise that you will be an heir of the world will happen in your life. Is that practical? If you could have guarantee, if you could have certainty, if you could have surety that you would be an heir of the world, would that not be practical? And if you answer no to that, I am at a loss to know what to say next. But it is practical to have rock-solid assurance that you can be an heir of the world. And that's what he's about here. Guarantee, he says. Built on grace through faith. I closed last week by uh, applying that third Exhortation, come on, come on, let's be a little crazy by saying, come on, you might even want to join a small group. I want to linger on that for just a minute because this is small group sign-up Sunday. I know that in this crowd, there are people who grew up in churches who didn't do that sort of thing. Small groups pray out loud together. Ask each other, how's it going with your faith? How is your struggle with pornography or greed, power, fear? How are you doing? Last thing in the world you would have ever done is join up a group like that. And you have yourself convinced right now that normal Christianity is you and God, maybe the Bible, and nobody else. Out of my face, out of my life, spirituality is a private thing, me, God. And that's normal. That's healthy. 
And I want to tell you, it's not biblical and it's not healthy. It's not good for you. It blesses nobody else. It doesn't honor God. And it will set you up for some big time fall. And so I'm willing to say some of you are at the level of doing something really crazy, really radical. Like go back to Wedgwood Church on Sunday morning in Fort Worth. Go back to the blood-stained pews and sit there and say, we will worship and be unintimidated in this place. And others of you are at the level where to join a small group would be a Copernican revolution. Just to go over there and stand in front of those panels and look at the pictures of those small group leaders, and offer up a little prayer to God. Oh God, is this is your will. Please guide me now to somebody or some topic or some location, and I will make a phone call or fill out this little thing. And I'm glad that you're at least there. Because there's millions who don't even get to that point in their radical walk with the greatest person in the universe, Jesus Christ. The people whose certainty about the promise of inheriting the world is the strongest in the midst of all kind of sensuality and suffering and secularism, the people whose confidence that they're going to be heirs of the world and whose lives therefore break out into radical kinds of loving and risk-taking, those are the people who have taken the time to meditate their way down deep into the fabric of Romans 4 and other texts like it. Don't be in such a hurry in this life that you don't become like a tree planted by streams of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaves don't wither, and in everything they do they prosper. Those people linger over the Word of God and meditate on it day and night. And all my preaching is, is an extended, drawn out, out loud meditation over the Bible to model for you how to do it. That's what preaching is for me in many ways. What's the foundation of certainty for the promise in verse 16? Answer, grace. For this reason it is by faith in order that may accord with grace so that the promise may be guaranteed. Now meditate with me for a moment on the connection between grace and guarantee. Grace and guarantee and why it is that only faith of all the states of the human heart that are possible, only faith accords with grace, which is the foundation of the guarantee of the promise. Your faith is essential. When I say that grace is the foundation, I don't mean your faith isn't essential. It is essential. But the reason it's essential is because faith is the only condition of the human heart that accords with. That phrase is so crucial. It accords with grace. No other state of the human heart accords with sovereign grace. 
besides faith. And it's grace that guarantees the promise. So what is this grace? What is grace? Well, we know what it is. It's it's the free and undeserved work of God to bring his people to glory. Grace is God's purpose to use all his undeserved might to do for you what you cannot do for yourself in order to bring you to the airship of the world. That's what grace is. And it's the ground of our guarantee. And only faith accords with this work of God. Faith is that condition. I want you to taste this. Taste how wonderful this grace is this morning. Grace is so sweet, so powerful, so wonderful underneath that promise that you can put it there from last week. Now to do this, I want us to to go back one step and go forward one step. And the whole point of the rest of this message is to try to get at what grace is as the foundation of the promise and a guarantee of it. Going back, we're going to look at 4 and 5, verses 4 and 5. Going forward, we're going to look at verses 17 and 19. So let's do these one at a time. Backwards, go with me back up your chapter to chapter 4, verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited. Now here, I wish we had in any English version a literal translation because the only other place in all the New Testament where the phrase in accordance with grace found in verse 16, the only other place in all the New Testament where that phrase occurs is right here in the next phrase. And nobody translates it like it's translated in verse 16. And so you don't see it. But let me translate it so you can see it. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited in accordance with grace. Same phrase as verse 16. It is by faith in order that it might be in accordance with grace. So he says to the one who works, works, if you want to work for God... You will get a wage, and that wage will not be credited in accordance with grace. Well, what will it be in accordance with? What's the opposite of grace in this verse? Answer, do. Debt, D-U-E, not D-O. Verse, the end of the verse. But as what is due. If you work for God, you will get a wage and it will not be in accordance with grace. It will be in accordance with debt. So if you want to put God in your debt, you work for him and the debt you get is what you deserve. He now owes you and you will die because the wages of sin, which is all you can do in trying to put God in your debt, is sin. But, verse 5, what's the opposite? What's the alternative? But to the one who does not work, but believes. Now, here's faith. Here's what does accord with grace. Works does not accord with grace. Faith accords with grace. But to him who believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is 
credited, graciously credited as righteousness. So he's talking about how to get justified, get right with God here. And he's talking about the opposite of grace and the opposite of faith. The opposite of grace is debt and the opposite of faith is work. So you can either choose the work, debt, wrath pattern or the faith, grace, promise pattern. Those are your options. You either take the law and use it as a law of commandments to try to perform for God and say, now pay me, and he does with hell because you always fail. Or you say, no, I'm not going to use the law that way and I'm not going to try to work for God. I'm going to go straight to God and I'm going to say, I trust grace to grant me your righteousness on which my promise will be given and the reward is everlasting inheritance of the world. So now what's the definition of grace in view of this new, new insight? Grace is the guarantee of the promise here. It is the override of our demerit. It's the override of our demerit. We come to God and all we bring him is demerit. Sin. We've never done a pure act in our lives apart from grace. We have nothing to offer God but demerit. So you can go to God and in presumption put that demerit on the table of the universe and say pay if you want judgment. Or you can put it there and then plead for the override which is called grace. So he overrides demerit. And that's why the promise is guaranteed. The promise is guaranteed, firstly, because grace is the foundation of it and grace overrides your demerit so that in the presence of the living God, a sinner can still have hope that he can be an heir of the world. Now that's going back in the text to verses 4 and 5 and seeing the nature of grace. And now... We want to go forward a little bit. But let me, before we go forward, let me stress something. Faith, according to verse 16, is what accords with this grace. Only one condition of the human heart, only one, accords with the work of God in overriding the demerit that I bring to him. And that is faith. Anything else that you try to insert there, do an end run around your demerit. Or say, I had a little bit of merit besides my demerit. Anything you do there besides trust grace does not accord with grace and will nullify promises. So it's very crucial that you see the connection. Faith, grace, guarantee of promise. Faith is the only thing that accords with this massive reality called grace, which overrides our demerit and thus secures for us as sinners the promise. Now, there's one last thing to do. And to ask from the context here, is there any other reason why grace is the foundation of the guarantee? Is it the foundation of the guarantee only because it overrides demerit? 
Or is there something else it must do in order to guarantee our inheritance? And the answer to that in this text is very clear and very profound. And so let's go forward now in this text and follow the train of thought into verse 17 and 19 and see what more this grace does that guarantees our inheritance. He comes to the end of verse 16 saying that grace guarantees the promise for all the descendants of Abraham, Jews who keep the law but also have the faith of Abraham, and Gentiles who don't even know the law perhaps but have the faith of Abraham, both kinds are the descendants of Abraham who are justified. And he quotes Genesis 17.5 at the beginning of verse 17, that Abraham will be the father of many nations. That is, you and me, we come from all different kinds of ethnic backgrounds, and all those are included if they have the faith of Abraham. And then he comes in the middle and the end of verse 17 to this absolutely crucial statement. This Faith of Abraham and this faith of all his descendants is, pick it up in the middle now, in the presence of him whom he, Abraham, believed. Who? God. Oh, what kind of God? And then he unpacks the God of grace who gives life to the dead, and calls into being that which does not exist. Now, why does he say that? Why does he direct our attention to a sovereign, divine work of God that involves him in taking deadness and doing what no human can do, bringing life out of death and looking at nothing and doing what no human can do, namely bringing something out of nothing. Why does he talk like this? What's he getting at? Where's he going? Where's this coming from? What's he up to with these words? He's up to talking about grace and a dimension of grace that goes beyond the override of demerit. This is grace that brings life out of death and something out of nothing. And that is the foundation of the promise also. Now you all know, or if you don't, let me tell you, that he has in mind Isaac, the son of Abraham. When Abraham received the promise that's quoted here in verse 17, he was 99 years old. Sarah, his wife, has been barren and never born a child. She's 90 years old. God gave him a promise when he was 75 and maybe there was some hope at 75 and 65 that they could have a child. Not much. And God postpones it another quarter of a century to make it crystal clear no human can beget 
a child of promise. That's the point of the delay. And then the promise comes. This time, next year, your wife will have a child. And if he is not born, the promise is nullified. So in order for the promise to be fulfilled and Abraham to become an heir of the world through his seed, Jesus Christ, he had to have a child of promise. And God set it up so Abraham couldn't do it. And out of the deadness of her womb, let's look at verse 19, read verse 19. Without becoming weak in faith, Abraham contemplated his own body. Now as good as dead. He's picking up the word dead from verse 17. Since he was about a hundred years old. And the deadness of Sarah's womb. Nothing is in her womb. Nothing is in her womb. It is nothingness. You can't bring out of nothingness something. What's the point? What's the point? What's he doing here? The point is, this is a picture Isaac being born through the supernatural intervention of the quickening, life-giving work of God is a picture of how all the children of promise come into existence. Why do I say that? I say it on the basis of Galatians 4.28 that goes like this. You, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. And he contrasts it with Ishmael. How was Ishmael born? Ishmael is a child of the flesh. Well, the picture is, all right, you've given me a promise. I'm going to be heir of the world. I've got to have descendants. Well, I guess I have to cooperate with God here, and I will do what I can do. I can get a concubine. I can have sex. And I can get an Ishmael. And he did it. And he pled in chapter 17, Oh God, let Ishmael stand before you. And God says, that's not the way I do things. I don't save people that way. I don't provide a foundation for the promise that way. I don't get children for myself that way. I get children through sovereign grace. That's the point of this text. The supernatural birth of Isaac is a picture of your birth into the kingdom and my birth into the kingdom. And the grace that performs it is the kind of grace that looks into your heart and sees demerit and overrides it and sees deadness and creates life. That's how you got saved. And the Bible wants you to know that and to revel in grace. To love grace so that when you sing amazing grace, you do put, like the book title says, amazing back into grace and feed on it. Now I want to close by drawing a parallel with a text where this is made crystal clear. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, is a magnificent parallel to Romans 4, 
17 and 19. So let's go there. Ephesians, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. Just turn over four books to Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Now what's remarkable about this parallel is not just that Paul is talking about our dead condition apart from Christ, but the way he inserts the word grace to account for our life. Let's read verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, that's picking up the deadness idea of verse 17 and 19 of Romans 4, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive with Christ. And then he sticks in a parenthesis. It butts in. It breaks the flow of the thought. It's coming later. Why didn't you hold back, Paul? Don't mess up your sentences this way. It's because he wanted us not to miss it. What does he mean when he says, he made us alive? He meant by grace you have been saved. You see that? That parenthesis? Even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive. Meaning, by grace you have been saved. So grace is two things, not just one thing, right? We see two things now. Grace is the override of your demerit. It's the disposition of God to love you so much that He will overlook your sin, forgive it all, and impute a righteousness to you. And now, now, watch this very carefully. One state of the human heart accords with this reality called grace. That state of the human heart is absolutely essential for the enjoyment of this grace and the beneficiary of the promise, and it is called faith. And the second thing grace does in order to guarantee for you your inheritance is give you Because you're dead. You are, as it were, nothing. You cannot bring yourself out of the tomb. You cannot make something out of nothing. You cannot make your dead soul live. Only God can make the dead live. Only God can make something out of nothing. And therefore... The real, solid, bottom guarantee of your promise is God brought you into being and God will keep you in being as a believer. That's the meaning of the new covenant. Behold, I will make with them a new covenant that I may not turn away from doing good to them and I will put my law within their heart And they shall not turn away from 
me. That's the meaning of the new covenant. Grace is the override of demerit and grace is the creation what you could never create and the sustaining of what you could never sustain. Let me ask you, do you believe there is such a thing in your life as a guarantee and an assurance that you will inherit the promise to be an heir of the world? And if you say yes, and I hope you do because it's thoroughly biblical to say yes, I would ask you this morning, on what do you bank your assurance that tomorrow morning you will not get up and apostatize against the living God and make shipwreck of your faith and be lost? If you say, oh, I can do that. I can make sure that that's going to happen. I'm not fickle. I don't change my mind. I don't have bad days. I don't fall away. Forget it. There's one thing that you can bank on. Grace to keep you. Grace to keep you. The precious, keeping, creative grace of God God, to, to call out of nothing that which is and to hold in being that which is. And if you want to see it, it's in verse 8 of Ephesians 2. For by grace... You have been saved through faith. Through faith. The one thing that accords with grace. And that faith and that salvation and that grace are a gift of God and not from yourselves. Let me close by putting it this way. If you consider the first act of saving, justifying faith, you can say it like this. Faith is to grace what seeing is to light. Faith is to grace what hearing is to sound. Faith is to grace what tasting is to spiritual sweetness. On the tongue of the soul. Not many people think about faith that way today. 300 years ago, almost every believer thought about grace that way. And faith that way. Faith accords with grace because faith totally receives. It even receives its own coming into being. Light is shining in this room. The sound of the Word of God is being heard in this room. And the sweetness of spiritual reality called grace is falling in this room now. And the command of God through me in love to you is look and see. Listen and hear. Taste the sweetness. Don't turn away from it. Don't say, I want to get home and see the rest of this game, for goodness sakes. Don't go back to the internet pornography. Don't don't go back to the, the career ladder and drive and drive and drive. 
Linger where you've tasted. Linger where you've heard. Linger where you've seen. Until you are ravished with this God by faith. Now may God grant to every one of you the faith that alone accords with grace so that you might have underneath the promise a rock-solid guarantee that you are all heirs of the world. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.